Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. I want to invite you as we jump into this today, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes and... Father, we come to you this morning and recognize that when we gather together, we always have an idea of what we're going to do, what we're going to talk about, and then there's always other stories that are happening, things unfolding, unseen things, challenges, heartaches, regrets, anger, all kinds of stuff. And so we want to just take a moment at the outset to... Bring all of this to you to be authentic about it, to be present to it as we come to your word. We, we ask that you would, uh, in these minutes we have together, that your spirit would move in us in whatever way we need it, however we need it. Pray that even in spite of whatever we're going to talk about today, that if, if we bring, if we are coming here today with something that, uh, other than what we're going to talk about, that you would meet us in that somehow. That we would be present to you, that your spirit would be at work in us. We simply thank you that in the midst of the chaos of this world, the uncertainties these days, various fears swirling about, that we may rest in you, that our souls can be mellowed because we are your sons and daughters. We pray that the reality of your goodness, the reality of your strength would be our strength, that we can trust you, that in the midst of uncertainty, fog, whatever it might be in our own lives, that we can lean into you and know that you are gentle and know that you are good and know that you will make a way. Give us uh, the gracious hearts to receive what you have for us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You would stand for our scripture reading. We talked about this, I believe, last Sunday or two Sundays ago, maybe, that we are in this Blessed Are the Peacemaker series throughout Lent. It'll take us right up into Easter. Every passage we're going to look at during this series comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Just to be straight up about it, some of them have direct implication to whatever it is the topic. Others are just good words for us that have something to do with what we're talking about, but there's a, they frame in the whole series and the whole subject. So we've chosen our passages from the Sermon on the Mount. Today we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe see. I'm reading from a recent news editorial. Now that the Democratic primary has been functionally narrowed to former Vice President Joe Biden, and Senator Bernie Sanders, with Donald Trump waiting in the wings to contend with one of them, there is one prediction about the coming election we can make with a great deal of confidence. There will be a lot of yelling. The election will be an angry one. But its anger will be a certain kind, cramped, masculine, muddled with fear. Perhaps that's the only kind of anger the electorate is comfortable with, But it keeps our political options narrow and ensures that our rage is always stoked and never soothed. The coming debates and rallies are likely to be high-volume affairs, orgies of Democrats' anger at Donald Trump and at corporations, and of Trump's vitriol against Democrats, immigrants, and the media. For the remaining contenders, anger is a selling point among many voters as it's a proxy for passion and strength. All three men liberally sprinkle their speeches with mild profanities, little reminders that they have not been softened too much by polite norms. 
I just find that a sobering commentary. And the line that especially grabs me and gets me says, there's one prediction about the coming election we can make with a great deal of confidence. There will be a lot of yelling. The election will be an angry one. I just think this is sad. It's just something to sort of look at. We might disagree with it, but there's an awful lot of truth wrapped up in this, and it's sad. And yet, as most of us know, anger and antagonism and vitriol is increasingly becoming embedded in the culture of our nation. It is the air we now breathe. We are a nation deeply divided over a wide range of issues. We live in us versus them times. There are hard lines drawn all over the place, separating opposing individuals and opposing groups. So there's always a side. There are multiple sides, and all sides think they are right and the other is wrong. All sides are quite skilled in judgment, as it is described in Matthew chapter 7. All sides are very good at naming the sawdust in the other's eye while ignoring the lumberyard in their own eye. But these days, the other is not just wrong. What deepens our national divide is the ease with which we now demonize those who disagree with us. This happens at this group level. Groups demonize opposing groups. This happens at the individual level where we demonize people who don't agree or see something the way we do. Those who disagree are no longer treated with the dignity a human being made in God's image deserves. In fact, God, the idea of God, the image of God, the place of God, no longer has much of anything to do with how people see those whose opinion differs from theirs. And so, in the absence of anything to govern the way we treat others, we belittle and we berate and we demean without much thought. We treat those whose perspective differs almost as subhuman, which is why we are so quick and so able to pounce and attack with such fury and such rage. We are no longer attacking and pouncing on another person who is a child of God made in his image. We are attacking and pouncing with fury and rage on something less than human. It's as though people forfeit their dignity, it seems we think, when they dared to think or believe or choose differently than we do. So there's us and there's them, and us is comprised of people, and them is often comprised of less than people. And this is going in every which direction these days. And as we've said many times, our president and many in our Congress and those who are currently running for president set the example of anger and belittling and berating. They repeatedly demean their opponent in the hopes of advancing their cause and winning an election, and the speed of the leaders has become the speed of our nation. And this angry and divisive cultural context is one reason why author and professor and thinker and pastor Dave Fitch writes, There's nothing higher on the list of what the world needs than the presence of Christ in reconciliation. And if you've been here for a bit of time, you know that we've spent a lot of time over the last half decade pressing into the delicate and difficult issues that are dividing our nation. We have adopted a posture here where we have sought to bring these difficult things right into the foreground of who we are as a church and consider them and grapple with them and struggle with them. These delicate and difficult issues that are dividing our nation and sometimes dividing churches. Last Sunday we began a new series that will continue up to Easter called Blessed Are the Peacemakers. It's a phrase taken straight from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9 where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And for the next several weeks, we are going to try to get real specific. 
about what it looks like for Christ followers to be peacemakers in these contentious and angry times. But there's a little twist to this that makes this series a bit different than ones we've done in the past. We're not going to talk about this idea of peacemakers up here as ideology or as theory or as a set of broad-brushed concepts or ideas. Rather, we're going to try to bring this notion of peacemaking down to the street level where we actually live. And here's what I mean. There are all kinds of global and national issues related to the conflicts and divisions and hot spots, if you will, in our country. And they're good for us to talk about. We need to be engaged with these things as followers of Jesus. They warrant our attention and they warrant our concern. And as I mentioned, we try to regularly raise these issues and press into them with kingdom eyes and kingdom ethics right here in this room. But they still sort of hang up here. At least some of them still sort of hang up here. They're still a bit out of our reach in terms of what we can actually do about these things or how we can actually engage with these things. <clears throat> so they might be fun to chat about with friends or with coworkers, or it might be fun to forward articles about these topics to our friends or to our family. But they don't really require much on-the-ground engagement by us. Again, some of them do, and some of them have practical, obvious implications in everyday life, but some of them don't really require much on-the-ground engagement by us, meaning we can have our opinion, we can espouse our opinion, we can share our opinion, but we're still just dealing in the realm of ideas and talking. Now, again, these are conflicts that we should care about and divisions we should care about, but they may not always intersect in the details of our everyday life experiences. Meaning, Bernie and Joe and Don are going to blister each other for the next eight months. They're going to trade insults back and forth virtually every day. And we really can't do a whole lot about that. We're going to watch it. We're going to read about it. We're going to hear about it. We might shake our head about it. We might chat with each other about, man, what is going on? How can, why is this happening? But it's going to happen. And we're a bit removed from being able to do anything about it. But we can do something about the very real conflicts and the very real tensions and the very real divisions and hot spots in our everyday life. We can do something, for example, about the arguments we have with our ex-spouse about how we are raising our children together. We can do something about the conflicts we have with our current spouse and the way we enter those conflicts. We can do something about the conflicts and the hot spots that go on in various neighborhoods over various issues, many of which are silly. We can do something about the conflicts we have with our parents or with our children or between friends or with people we work with, those hot spots, those tensions, those beneath the surface, surface low-grade simmering things. We can do something about those things. We can do something about the conflicts or tensions we have with complete strangers we occasionally have a run-in with in the Target parking lot. We can do something about those divisions right now. We can obey Jesus' teaching in those conflicts right now. We can stop judging others from a distance with our finger pointed, saying, look at the dust in your eye. We can stop that right now. We can stop identifying the sawdust in each other's eye and begin the painful and long process of starting to extract the log out of our own eye. And so I want to recommend during this particular series on Blessed Are the Peacemakers that we think about and enter into the conflicts and divisions and hot spots at the real practical level of our everyday lives and relationships and seek to be a peacemaker in those conflicts and in those relationships. A very smart, very wise guy named N.T. Wright writes and puts it this way. When God wants to sort out the world as the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount make clear, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the broken, 
the justice hungry, the peacemakers, the pure hearted, and so on. And I want us just to lock in and think of it as when God wants to sort out the world, he sends in the peacemakers, which is what we want to talk about for the next several weeks. So let's begin by talking about everyday life peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. When Jesus talked about peacemaking, he meant active involvement in bringing together those who were estranged. Group over here, group over here, and a peacemaker works to bring them together. Person over here, person over here, and sometimes one of these acts like a peacemaker to bring the two back together. There's this image that I just heard about and saw recently as I was uh, listening to um, uh, a reading about an interview that happened with Hillary Clinton recently, and she was talking about when her husband Bill Clinton at, at the time had an affair and told her he had had the affair with Monica Lewinsky, and she said, well, you need to tell Chelsea, their daughter. So he tells Chelsea, their daughter, and there's this picture. They left, I believe it was the White House, right after this happened, and they were walking to an airplane, and the thing I was reading said that Chelsea grabbed Hillary's hand and Bill's hand and walked together right in the midst of all this tension as kind of a... They aren't going to do it with each other right now, but I'll stand between them and begin the process of holding them together and bringing them together. There's something in that image that points to a peacemaker. Instead of swallowing the bait and engaging in another fight, we relinquish the fight. We relinquish the division. We lay down the bitterness. We abandon the quest to conquer and win and be right and get our point across. And instead we pray for and we work for peace. So when our various real-life differences and conflicts and tensions, instead of fighting to win, we come as peacemakers. Matthew 5 and verse 9. Peace is a theme throughout the entire Bible. And the challenge we may face is that the word and the idea of peace automatically triggers a certain picture in our mind we don't like and don't want anything to do with. A picture, for example, of softness. Someone who is peaceful is someone who just has a way of talking very softly and they seem to lack passion and they kind of just whisper all the time, even when they're yelling, and that doesn't appeal to us. Or peace evokes the idea of non-confrontational. Or peace evokes the idea that we're going to just do this and this and this to make everybody happy. Or peace evokes the idea that how can we not make any waves here? But none of these are even close to the biblical meaning of peace. One scholar describes peace this way. The theme of peace permeates the biblical record. It indicates completeness and wholeness in every area of life, including one's relationship with God, neighbors, and nations. Two really important words related to peace are completeness and wholeness. He goes on. The zealots of Jesus' day attempted to bring self-rule back to Israel through the guerrilla warfare tactic of divide and conquer, while the religious leaders brought as much division within Israel by their sectarian commitments. But the real peacemakers are those who bring the good news that God reigns. The true peacemakers are those who wait and work for God, who makes whole the division created by humans. In the economy of Jesus' kingdom, then, peace is not appeasement. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not the conflation of differences into a kind of zestless neutrality. It's not peace. Down at the street level where we actually live, peacemaking means bringing the shalom of God, the wholeness of God, the flourishing of God, the completeness of God into the very real conflicts and tensions we have in our relationships. Now, maybe this is hitting a little bit too close to home, so you can just lean on me for this, and let me say it this way. Peacemaking means bringing the shalom of God into the very real conflicts and tensions and hot spots between 
Julie and I. So we dialogue. We converse with calmness and with grace. We listen to each other. We may debate, fiercely debate, but we keep listening in order to learn and grow through the conflict. In the Bible, a peacemaker has experienced reconciliation with God through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and this experience of their own reconciliation is a life-changing encounter that sets them on a course to thereafter live as an ambassador of peace in a world where people are estranged from God And from each other. But the foundation of peacemaking is the peace we now have with God through the sacrifice of Jesus talked about in Romans chapter 5. So the peacemaker heads into their conflicts and divisions and hot spots ready to dispense the very thing they have received from God himself. Ready to dispense grace. Ready to dispense goodness. And ready to bring flourishing To the brokenness. The theme of biblical peace then is about the restoration of wholeness in our relationship with God and with others. Just camp on that with others for a second. The theme of biblical peace is about the restoration of wholeness in our relationships with others. Wholeness, flourishing, abundance, freedom, authenticity without fear. Realness. Say it this way. Wholeness is the way our relationship would be if God were king over it and we were fully submissive to him and to each other. Maybe it sounds a bit fairy taleish. So again, I'm going to fall back into just using Julie and I as an example. Wholeness is the way Julie's and my relationship would be if God were king over it and we were fully submissive to him and fully submissive to each other. And here's the thing. Who doesn't want that? This kind of wholeness, this kind of restoration, this kind of, this is the way it was intended to be. Who doesn't want that? This is a desire of our souls. And peacemaking is about moving toward this wholeness. We're not so foolish to think that this is going to happen like that. We're not so foolish to even think that it's going to completely happen. But peacemaking is about moving toward wholeness, bringing it forth a little bit more. Peacemakers make whole the divisions we help create in our relationships. We help create in our relationships. I bring the absence of peace. I bring turmoil and chaos to my relationship with Julie. And peacemakers step back from that and seek with God's help to make whole those divisions that we've helped create. Peacemakers respond to relational hostility and conflict by being agents of peace. Peacemakers do not return anger for anger or insult for insult. Or violence for violence. Peacemakers do not return insult for insult. Peacemakers do not retaliate. So in this series, we're going to focus on the restoration of wholeness in our relationships, which prompts the question, where do our relationships lack wholeness? And this is where we start to get down into our business in a more detailed way probably would be good to think of one relationship at this point. One relationship. What is fractured in this one relationship with this person? And more specifically, emanating out of Matthew 7, what's my part in that fracture? What am I contributing to that brokenness? How am I adding to the hot spot in that one relationship. Peacemaking is about moving toward wholeness in those relational fractures. Obviously, we can't chase down everything that's off. We can't pursue wholeness in every single relationship all the time or at the same time. It's absurd absurd to think so. We live in a world of unfinished symphonies. So we need the Spirit of God to nudge, to point, to prompt where He wants to focus, us to focus. 
hot spots in our relationships where the Spirit wants to nurture a greater degree of wholeness. Hot spots in our relationships. One hot spot. And if the reality of our God reigns were to settle over one of these hot spots, the relationship would be different and we would be different. So the question is, what's the hot spot? Just one of them. Name it. Feel it for a second. It's good to camp here for just a second. Not rush too fast through this. Our scripture reading presses us to stop looking at what the other is doing in the relationship. To stop looking at the things they're bringing and contributing to the hot spot. The scripture reading is very clear. Stop thinking about what they're contributing. And think a bit and focus on how we are contributing to the tension and the conflict and the hot spot. Julie and I have been married a long time. Early in our marriage, we did not do conflict well at all. I was terrible at it. She wasn't much better. We blamed each other a lot. We pointed our finger at each other a lot. We Matthew 7 each other a lot. Judged each other. We yelled a lot. Thought about it. We should have run for president back then. We had all the qualities needed to get elected. But good stuff has happened over our many years together through God's intervention, through struggle, through hard work. Obviously, we're still in process and have a long way to go on this. But she said something to me the other day that she's told me before in one way or another, but it really landed on me the last time she said this. And I've been thinking about it ever since. It it really reflects one of the contributions I make that creates a hot spot in our relationship. She said something like this. These were not anywhere near her exact words. I sort of fiddled them around with them a bit so that it, I could, I could really think about it. But this is essentially what she said to me. I feel like you often come into our difficult conversations or conflicts and you've already had a conversation with me in your head. So you think I feel this way or that way because in the conversation you had with me in your head, I felt this way or that way according to you. But the me in your head is not me. So stop talking to the imaginary me inside your wacky head and just talk to me and let me tell you how I actually feel about this or about that. And she said some version of that to me and I probably in the moment said, no, I don't do that. And then when I got away from her, I thought, how does she know that? Because there's two Julies. There's the one that's sitting over there And there's the one who lives up here. So I'd come into these conversations sometimes and I'd say this and that. And I was like anticipating answers and saying, I know you think this way. I know you feel this. And she go, how do you know that? And I'm thinking in my head, because I already talked to you about this. But I'd never say that. And then finally she got onto it. You think you're talking, you think you know me because you think you've already had a conversation with me. And you did with the imaginary me who lives up inside that crazy head of yours. Just talk to me and say goodbye to that person who's not me. That's one way I contribute to a hot spot in our relationship. I come into these difficult conversations and I've got all these assumptions and all these convictions I think are true because in the private conversation I had with Julie when she wasn't there, this is what she told me. It's just that it doesn't align with reality. I need to keep thinking on all that. There's a lot in that. i got to talk with God about all that. Because like all these things, there's a lot going on beneath the surface of all this stuff. It's not as simple as stop doing this and start doing that. I need to unpack some of this if I'm ever going to be a peacemaker in that sort of hot spot. Let's talk for a bit about moving toward conversation. It seems to me as though intense conflict is on the rise, but authentic face-to-face conversation about conflicts, is on the decline. We're choosing other ways to handle the conflict other than talking to the one with whom we have the conflict. And one of the main points of emphasis throughout this series that we're going to revisit each week, in some ways this whole series is about entering into conversations regarding the conflicts and tensions and hotspots we have in our relationships and how do we enter into those conversations. 
How do we talk about stuff that's hard to talk about? And so we just want to keep moving toward conversations to unwind the tension and start to address the conflict. And as we go along, we'll talk about specific postures and values we want to try to uphold throughout the series so that we can bring these into the conversation. But the point here today is simply to say, move toward a conversation with the one that you have the conflict with. Sit down together and commit to talking about the tension or the division or the conflict or the hotspot. Throughout Jesus' time on this planet... He chose to cross into forbidden territory on a regular basis to be with those who were different or who were on the outside. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. The Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Matthew, the hated tax collector, and his seedy friends in Matthew chapter 9. And in addition to crossing over these barriers to be with these folks, in each of these instances, Jesus had conversations with them. It's so Simple, we almost miss it. Sometimes his conversations sparked a movement in their transformation journey, and other times it didn't. And Jesus did this with his own disciples as well. When they were off track in some way or they needed guidance, Jesus paused and he found a way to create a space for a conversation. It's really so simple. It's just so obvious. Jesus often engaged in conversations with those who did not share his worldview or did not understand what he was talking about. So to help that, he had a conversation. He often had conversations with those who disagreed with him. But when it comes to the conflicts and tensions we have in our relationships, some of us just avoid talking about these things. And sometimes we should avoid it. We don't have to bring everything up. But some of us have sort of trained ourselves to always avoid conflict. Some of us are afraid of the conflict, so we just avoid it altogether. Others of us have conversations with the person who lives in our head, but not the real person. We dream up all these ideas about why the person did whatever they did, what their motivation was, and we have all of that figured out before we ever even talk to the person. And others of us talk with everyone except the one with whom we have the conflict. I heard someone recently say, a healthy and authentic relationship requires having difficult conversations now and then. Very simple. Very true. Simple practice. Where there's a hot spot, sometimes you can move toward the conversation about it. Make time to talk about it. And yet, with email and texting, social media, and this ingrained habit to avoid, the practice of sitting down and talking about the tensions and the conflicts is a bit of a lost art. And again, this image of a peacemaker may get in our way when it comes to actually conversing about the difficulties because the image of the peacemaker that may be in our mind is passive, avoider, quiet, doesn't say much, don't want to make waves. How do we get to the zestless neutrality where everybody's happy, no one feels offended? None of that is peace. So that image of a peacemaker, we've got to crawl through that. Let me try and shock us out of that. I think the peacemaker, the authentic peacemaker, is actually a conflict seeker. Not a conflict creator, but a conflict seeker. When they see it, when it arises, they move toward it, not away from it, because they come to the conflict with the reconciling power of Jesus, or say it this way, they come to the conflict realizing that God has a unique way of showing up in the tensions and in the difficulties and in the estrangement. He has a way of doing that. The essence of the gospel is about God initiating and coming to us who were estranged enemies of him and bringing us back to restore us. So where that's happening, he's, he tends to be around that sort of thing. So the authentic peacemakers moving toward conflict, not away from it, because they're coming in the reconciling power of Jesus and they find ways to proclaim his reign over the various divisions and hotspots of a relationship. They find a way to lay down the weapons of warfare. The Spirit of God is present in the unwinding of these conflicts. There's reconciliation potential. God tends to be in that. This idea of restoring wholeness, God is in that. This idea that flourishing can replace suffering, God is in that. So on. Not long ago, I sat down with someone at their initiative with whom there was an underlying tension. They wanted to meet. And they brought up the tension 
and they expressed their feelings about what had happened, and they did it marvelously. Meaning, they started with looking at the stuff in their own eye and what they had done or not done that might have created this thing with me. And then they brought up where they had felt hurt by me. And they did a marvelous job of this. And over the course of a two-hour conversation, the tension and the conflict unwound. It's a tough conversation. But when it was over, the fractures had healed a little bit and the brokenness had taken a half a step toward wholeness. This idea of having face-to-face authentic conversation really matters around here at Oak Hills. It's important kingdom work because we believe God often shows up in these conversations when we're talking about tough stuff and that his kingdom often breaks through in those conversations. So we've got this thing. I mentioned it, I believe, last weekend. Uh, Paul Yin has this uh, idea, this class he wants to facilitate around the delicate and difficult subject of abortion. So, I talked a little bit about it last week. Paul, why don't you come on up? He's going to share with us more specifically what's going to happen. All right. Hey. That makes it rather difficult for me to sit here and have a serious conversation with you, but we'll do our best. So, what's with the helmet? Well, I feel a little vulnerable this morning. So this is what vulnerability looks like. You're going to wear that during the class? Yeah, this is like I'm preparing ahead to the class, (laughs) just in case. I'll be safe. So you have had this idea for a while. Tell everybody what this is going to be about. Uh, Well, first of all, let me tell you what this is not about. Um, So number one, I'm not trying to convince anybody to endorse with any particular position. So that's not what I'm trying to do. Uh, In fact, what I'm trying to do is to... Uh, to point out that how we currently talk about abortion in terms of pro-life and pro-choice is really a false dichotomy. In a way, uh, it's a little bit like living in the holodeck. So I'm going to go Star Trek here for a minute, right? Um, when I say Captain James T. Kerr, Mr. Spock, the Vulcan, everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Okay, now, no, maybe, hopefully. Now I'm going to jump to the next generation, Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Okay, I hope you're still with me. From what I understand, William Shatner is, uh, you know, is doing denials. And no, that's not a real, you know, starship captain. But anyway, so in the Jean-Luc Picard era, the starship Enterprise have something called a holodeck. And the holodeck can generate a, a whole new world in there using a hologram. It's not real, but it feels real. You can see it, you can hear it, you can touch it, you can smell it, you can interact with it, all until you say something like computer and program, and the whole thing just disappear. So when we keep talking about abortion using pro-life and pro-choice, it's a little bit like we're living in the holodeck. So what I try to do in this class is to reach in there and pull you out of the holodeck so we can talk about this in the real world. Got it. So, I know you've been thinking about this for a while, but talk a bit about why you decided to facilitate this and what your hope is as you go through this. Well, this is actually um, like a paradox. So, on, the, on one hand, I so want to talk about this because I see the church suffers from this. The church is torn apart into different camps uh, to support different political issues. So, instead of uh, the church informing the world how to deal with brokenness. Uh, it seems like it's the other way around. The world is informing us how to deal with brokenness. Uh, on the other hand, I so not want to talk about this because of the sensitivity of the issue. And uh, the funny thing is, uh, I, I think at one level, uh, this class comes to be from a misunderstanding. Because last year, you announced that uh, you're going to be preaching a sermon series on pull up a chair. We're going to talk about uh, controversial uh, issues. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to be talking about uh, sexuality. So at that moment, I thought we're going to be doing something like uh, the fire pit that, that we used to do. So... After that sermon, I was the first one to run down here and tell Mike, I'm going to take up your challenge. I'm going to talk about abortion. And you're going to look at me and say, some guy forgot to take his medication this morning. It's a common thought I have about Paul. (laughs) (laughs) And I did take mine this morning, though. Yeah, Uh, you did? Yeah, yeah. You need to take more. Uh, That's what I thought. Yeah, that's right. 
So, so, so that, uh, that first encounter led to our subsequent getting together, talking about this, and, and looking back, uh, I, I suspect that the Spirit of God is in action somehow, that, the, that He is nudging me, that He is asking me like, uh, well, are you gonna do this? Uh, are you afraid? Are you afraid somebody's gonna crack your skull? But wear a helmet. <laughs> so, so this is where we are. What are the dates of the class? Uh, we're going to be doing this on three separate Sundays. The first is going to be like two weeks from today. It's going to be a March 22nd. I'm going to be doing this in the uh, library, uh, I believe. Uh, it's going to be at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And also the week after, the 29th, it's going to be 9 o'clock only. Uh, and 29th, yes. 29th, that's right. And then the last is going to be on April 5th. Uh, it's only going to be 11 o'clock. And you can look that up from your app, from the website, Register events and you'll find it. And so you understand it's not a four part class. It's one class offered four times. So there can be more, as many people as want, go on the app or on the website and you can sign up for it. And again, each one will be basically the same, but the idea is to give different options so people, if they're not here one of those weeks, you can get at it another time. I chatted with Paul a couple weeks ago about this on the phone, just as we were trying to finalize what he was going to do. And this is one of the things that I really like about who we are as a church. This is a topic, it's a hot topic for sure. A lot of issues, a lot of passion, a lot of feeling about it. And to be able to bring this into the center of a discussion and have a conversation about it with civility, with grace, with gentleness, to try to have a learning discussion about it and try to understand it better is a beautiful expression of the very things we're going to be talking about in this series. So thanks, Paul, for sharing. Thank you. So let's talk one more thing I want to talk about. It has, it's something that is related to this idea of conversation, and it actually starts to move toward this kind of an idea. If we're going to move toward a conversation with somebody who's close to us about a difficult thing, how do we begin that conversation? And what I want to talk about is this idea of beginning the conversation with the third story. None of this is my creation. All of this comes from people who know what they're talking about with this. I really don't know what I'm talking about. I shouldn't even be talking about this because it's fresh to me. But it's really creative and helpful, so I want to wade into this just a bit. few of us from the church participated in a seminar yesterday that was based on a book called Difficult Conversations. Now, if this whole subject resonates with you, I would strongly recommend getting the book. Not a Christian book necessarily. Incredibly helpful book. How do you wade into these discussions and what are some of the things to be paying attention to? It's called Difficult Conversations. It's a helpful book. I had read it a few years ago, most of it. I read it more carefully over the last few weeks. It's practical and helpful resource in trying to have a tough conversation with someone. The seminar in the book and the book both suggest the first thing to do when you are having a hard conversation is what they call share the third story. And I think it's a helpful concept. Uh, there's my story, there's their story, and then there's a third story. And I think it's helpful as we think about our own conflicts and tensions. So let me try and illustrate this. My son Sam was at our house on Friday night. We have an old mini refrigerator that doesn't work. So Julie asked him to move it to the garage. And as he was moving it, I asked him if he could just continue on to his car and take it up to his apartment and drop it up there somewhere in a garbage can or whatever, probably against the law. But if anyone asked, I'd say it was Julie's idea. In any case, when I asked him to take it to his apartment, he started hedging. You know, I don't know, Dad. He's got the thing in his hand. I don't know, Dad. I just cleaned my car. I'm thinking, what's that got to do with anything? So... I know the routine when Sam gets in this mode. I've had many conversations with Sam in my head. I know exactly what he's going to say. So, so I know all of those attempts that he gets into. He's trying to explain himself. It all can be simplified into a very short statement. I don't want to do that, Dad. That's basically what he's saying. So he put it in the garage. I go, why can't you just put it in the car? He goes, okay, I'll take it when I leave tonight. I came back. I had a meeting here. I got home late Friday night, and there it was, sitting in the garage, and he was gone. A hot spot in my relationship with Sam. So I got a few options. Oh, what's a big deal? It's a mini refrigerator. No big deal. Let it go. Don't need to bring it up. That's a good option. 
Or I can Matthew 7 him. Point at him, blame him, judge him, either in my head or for real. Talk about, you know, you're inconsiderate, blah, 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 blah. None of that's going to be all that helpful. Or I can have a conversation with him. If it's going to linger, it's going to lay there, if I'm going to be frustrated about it and just have to pretend it doesn't affect the future, that's not going to work, so maybe I need to have a conversation with him. But here's the thing. If I have a conversation with him, my typical way is going to be tell him my version of the story. And in my version of the story, I'm right, he's wrong, and the fridge stays in the garage. Or he can tell me his version, which he would after I tell him my version. And in his version, I'm probably wrong, he's probably right, and the fridge is still sitting in the garage. Probably the best way to begin this conversation would be to come up with a third story. And the third story represents the perspective of an impartial third party who had watched and heard our exchange about the refrigerator and who knows all of the related feelings and issues connected to this seemingly simple task. A third story then that encompassed and summarized the various issues in play, taking into account all sorts of stuff. You're looking for a biblical example of this. It's in John chapter 8. Their story is this woman sinned, committed adultery. Everybody grab a rock. We're going to kill her because the law says we should. Her story is, I don't know where he was, but her story, we don't know what her story was. I doubt it was, you know, you're right, kill me. Probably something different. And what happens? Jesus steps into this thing. There's their story. Here's her story. And he steps right into the middle of it. And he brings a third story. And it's different than either of the first two. It's impartial. It's factoring in things that haven't been factored in yet. It's understanding the deeper and the broader implications. It's understanding this woman's heart and her potential future. It's understanding their heart and how they've misunderstood the law and what it actually is and so on and so forth. So I, like I kind of think of it like this. If an invisible Martian had watched Sam and I and heard our exchange, what would her story be of that situation? Because her story is probably the most accurate. It's probably the one that best captures all of the related feelings and concerns and issues connected to moving the refrigerator because she's impartial. Partial. She doesn't really have much skin in the game. I'm not impartial. Sam's not impartial. We've had this happen a hundred times before. We could replay the tape of what's going to go down. Sam, why didn't you take it? Da, 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 da. Back and forth, nobody wins the garage or the refrigerator never gets moved. We're looking out for our own interests. The Martian would be impartial. So if I were to spend some time thinking of this third story, I might enter into this conversation with Sam about this hot spot like this. You know, buddy, I realize you work all week and you've got a demanding job. I get that. I know it's weird to come to your parents' house now and then and still have us giving you chores at the age of 27. I get it. That's weird. You know, we just revert back to you're a little kid and we're dumping stuff on you and you're our yak that carries stuff around. I get that. And I know I ask you to do stuff and you just want to be able to come to our house and relax and enjoy. I get that. It makes sense. And I actually wish I could carry that thing myself, but I can't. Well, I came home Friday night thinking the refrigerator was going to be gone and then I saw it sitting in the garage. Now, maybe I heard you wrong. It's possible. But I thought you said you were going to take it with you when you left. I don't want to make a big deal out of this because it's not a big deal. It's not world hunger. It's a mini refrigerator. But can you help me understand your perspective on this thing so we can work through it? Now, that may seem like a lot of work over a little thing because it is a lot of work. But I found in my relationships, unaddressed little things sometimes turn into thick walls that separate and divide. And one little thing becomes a hundred of those little things. And before you know it, there's a wall there. So better get to them when they're little than wait for them when they get big. I like this idea, this third story thing. I need this. I bring the hot spots I bring into my relationships is often because I think I'm right. And I go into these relationships and into these conversations determined that if I say it just so, I'm going to persuade the other person and they're going to go, you know what, Dad, you're right. I really should have just put it in the car. Let me go get that and put it in the car and I'll drive it up to the apartment right now and I'll come back and then we can hang out. And that's actually happened never. 
but I keep on trying. So I want to wrap this up. I think it's really important to acknowledge the role of God's spirit in these conflicts and in these tensions and in these conversations. And the way that God's spirit moves when we move into these conversations with an awareness and a prayerfulness to his spirit's work in the midst of these details. Now, mind you, these conversations don't always work out. They don't always go well. Our preferred resolution does not always happen. But the Spirit of God works in these conflicts if we invite Him in. If we want to think of it this way, the Spirit of God is in the business of bringing estranged people back together and bringing the estranged back to Him. Reconciliation business. Peacemaking, where there's chaos and tension and conflict. Enmity. Enemies, us and God. He's in the business of reaching across that canyon and restoring the relationship. So when we step into that kind of work with each other, we can do so with confidence. The Spirit of God is active to unwind those tensions and divisions if we want Him to. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your good word and for your insight and mostly for your example the way in which you lived, crossed over invisible barriers, the way in which you were a peacemaker, even though you often had people walking away from you unhappy. And we want to continue to learn how to do this in our own individual lives and as a church, that we could be peacemakers in this divided world. So help us do this, we pray in Christ's name. Well, thanks for being here today, and as you depart, may the grace and the peace and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks for coming.